Now I think we'll turn uh, straight away this evening to the uh, scriptures of God's word and read the assigned portion from 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. Now, I should say, as you are finding the passage, that this evening I want to provide, as it were, a conclusion to the lengthy series of studies in the Westminster Confession, and next Sunday evening to put the capstone, as it were, upon the whole of our series together uh, in these last 18 months of evening services. And thereafter, God willing, we will begin a series of Sunday evening expositions in the lovely and short uh, first letter of John in the New Testament, the first book of John. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am ready, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, that is, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for this portion of his own word. Now you may wish, as usual this evening, to have access to the Confession of Faith, which you will find, as you are well aware, at the back of the Trinity Hymnal. And uh, you may want to turn to the beginning of the Confession around page 673. We will be referring to various chapters briefly. Uh, tonight, and it would be an advantage to have access, as usual, to the confession of faith. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we have for a long time been engaged in a marathon, a very wonderful marathon together, encompassing some 18 months of evening services in total, as we have examined uh, the subject of what Christians believe. And as we have done so, particularly in the light of Scripture primarily, but as summarized also in the wonderful and succinct teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the subordinate standard 
of our church. This evening, we've come to the point where the exposition of the final chapter has been accomplished, and we are, I believe, in a position where we can begin to summarize the fruits of these long studies together. You need, I'm sure, no reminder this evening that we're living in an age in which doctrine is increasingly despised by many even who profess the name of Christ. We're living in an age where in certain sections of the professing Christian church, the slogan has been adopted, no creed but Christ. And its very simplicity might at first appeal to us until we realize that the substance of the Bible's teaching is in much greater fullness than a simple slogan such as that. And in fact, the value of these studies I trust both to you and certainly I know for myself as the giver of these studies has been that they have put a much needed iron into the blood of our Protestant and our Reformed witness. Now, there are certain reasons, I believe, as I begin to summarize the fruits of our studies, there are certain reasons why this study has been valuable and will, I trust, in our lives continue to be valuable to us. Indeed, I hope, all through our Christian pilgrimage. And I've summarized these reasons uh, under four heads this evening, and as time permits, I'd like to expand upon these heads with you. The value of these doctrinal studies and the value of the Westminster Confession of Faith, for us, I trust, is not in any measure a small value. It's valuable because it is a biblical statement of what Christians believe. And it's valuable, secondly, because there is an historical vindication of what we've been studying together all through the ages of the church. And the third reason is what we have been sharing together is not academic and theoretical, but is so practical that we may take it and use it in daily Christian experience. It has the endorsement of Christian experience. And the fourth reason that I hope we will come to finally this evening is that in these studies of the doctrines of Scripture lies, I believe, the great remedy for the church's present condition, the sine qua non, the essential that we need to grasp if ever we are going to see biblical reformation and biblical revival in our churches and denominations in this age. So I hope you'll be able to go from this service this evening and if someone asks you, well, why should I read the Westminster Confession? Why should I study Christian doctrine? You would be able at least to say that there are these four reasons why a person should do this. Now let me begin at the beginning with some comments on the first of these four principles or reasons for the value of doctrinal study and particularly the value of the study of the confession of faith in the light of Scripture. First of all, it is a thoroughly biblical document. And one of the great advantages I trust that we have been seeing together on these many Sunday evenings is that 
every statement of the confession of faith, I would say without any exception, is grounded thoroughly and accurately in Scripture. There have been many creedal formulations all through the ages. There have been many confessions of faith, particularly in the time of the Protestant Reformation. But I think it's the persuasion of many of us this evening that the one that excels above all others is without question the Westminster Confession that we have been studying together. Now, we're going to have some interruptions this evening quite clearly, then this may come across even on the amplifying system, but don't be alarmed. Look with me, if you will, just briefly at some of the chapters of Holy Scripture. Uh, I'm sorry, some of the chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have your copy open with you, and there on page 673, for example, there's the chapter on Holy Scripture. It was the great theologian, Benjamin B. Warfield, who was no mean judge of men's writings, who said that probably the finest single chapter in any Protestant confession of faith on the subject of Scripture is found there in the first chapter of the Confession of Faith. When you compare this statement with some other creedal statements or confessional statements, such as the 39 Articles of the Church of England, you find that in the 39 Articles, the article dealing with Scripture is, I believe, the sixth article in that creedal formulation. When you come to the Westminster Confession, it is the very first emphasis of the confession of faith, that Scripture is the first and the primary and ultimately the only source for what Christians believe. And in that statement, in chapter 1, I think we have the finest, the most succinct, the fullest and the most accurate statement of what we are to believe concerning the Holy Word of God. You take just one phrase from there that almost jumps out at you from the pages, that it is the infallible truth and the divine authority for Christian living. And you see in that precise formulation alone the answer to so many of the errors that have crept into the church through theological liberalism and modernism. So many answers to the heresies that through the ages have evolved around the subject of what Scripture is or is not. It contains infallible truth. It comes to us with the stamp of divine and godlike authority. And by the study of the scriptures, as the divines say, we are moved into the position where we are enabled to give all glory to God through the full discovery that it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellences, section 5, and the entire perfection of it and the arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And so we could go on. If you take another example of the biblical nature of the confession, in chapter 3, 
dealing with the decrees of God, it is simply a fine chapter as we discovered. And Professor John Murray, the late Professor John Murray, in one of his writings, described it as, na- as, as narrow and as straight as the razor's edge. It deals with the subject of the decrees of God, predestination and foreordination, and yet drives such a straight line through the complex teaching of Scripture that both of these decrees of God are upheld and distinguished. His sovereignty is honored. Man's responsibility is also emphasized. And in its teaching of double predestination, it carefully guards the biblical emphasis that when God foreordains men to everlasting death, it is upon judicial grounds that he does so. It is for their sin that he has foreordained them to destruction and has passed over them in terms of his not electing them to everlasting life. And so you see, even in that great matter of the decrees of God, there is abundant evidence of the uh, fully scriptural nature of the exposition. If you look at another chapter, chapter 7 of God's covenant with man, you look merely at the the closing sentence uh, of that uh, particular section, chapter 7, the closing sentence of the last section. There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance but one and the same under various dispensations. Now you see, when men grasp that simple but profound biblical truth of the unity of the scriptures and the unity of God's revelation, not through some abstruse uh, theory of dispensationalism, but through the simple scriptural teaching of the covenant, it is the answer to so many modern heresies in the church today. And if the evangelicals around us had kept their grip on this doctrine of the one covenant of grace that runs like a purple thread from Genesis to Revelation, they would not have been so easily led to cut up the Bible into different sections in the way that Dr. J. G. Machen described as a very delirium of folly. You take another chapter, chapter 16 of the Confession of Good Works, and the closing section again is eminently noteworthy. Works done by unregenerate men Although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor for a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet or fitting to receive grace from God, and yet that the neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. Well, what a testimony today on the subject of whether the right living man can make himself acceptable to God, whether there is such a thing as the honest pagan who in the day of judgment will be able to stand and say, because I lived in thus and thus a way, God will receive me and forgive me. And the answer, of course, again, in the words of 
Augustine, is that even the good works of the outstanding pagans are nothing but splendid sins. And yet there is the balance of the confession, but it is right even for the unregenerate man to live in an upright way rather than in an openly wicked and rebellious way before the demands of God's law. Such balance, such wisdom, such scriptural faithfulness in every area with which the confession deals. Well, let me say finally under the idea and the reason of being a biblical statement that if you turn to the final chapter of the confession that we have been studying recently for four Sunday evenings, you notice the emphasis of that final chapter and particularly of the final section, the emphasis is upon the second coming of Christ as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity so he will have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security, be always watchful because they know not at what hour their Lord shall come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Now, it seems to me that the way in which the confession concludes is nothing short of wonderful, almost to the point of being inspired. I say almost so. Because when you look at other works of theology and indeed some of the other great reformed confessions, you find that they end upon the note of the future punishment of the wicked and the doctrine of hell. If you look at the work of Hodge in his three-volume Systematic Theology and the work of Shedd, the Baptist theologian, or the work of Strong, another Baptist theologian, you find that they end their dealing with doctrine upon the very dark but necessary subject of hell and everlasting punishment. Now, while no doubt the terrors of the Lord should be very much in our mind, the Bible is primarily a book of salvation. And what I love about the way in which the confession ends is that that note is struck both at the beginning in the doctrine of Scripture and at the end in the doctrine of our Lord's great second coming in great power and glory. And it ends upon the earnest note of exhortation for us who are believers to be in readiness for that event. And it closes as the Bible closes in the book of Revelation with the great and glorious hope of Christ's second coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And as I say, I think that's wonderful and one of the distinctive marks and values of the biblical nature of this confessional statement. It is biblical, clear in its statements, strong in its affirmations, with abundance of scriptural support. And I truly believe that this confession excels all others because precisely it is so accurate a summary of the teachings of scripture. Now the second thing that I wanted to share with you is that the reason why these studies, I hope, should have been of value to us is that 
there is an historical vindication for them. They are vindicated by history. Now, what do I mean? Well, I mean that all through the course of the Christian centuries, the great work of the Holy Spirit, above all other in his church, has been to lead his believing people into a knowledge of the truth. Insofar as sinners are concerned, his great work is to lead them to Christ. But insofar as his work in the church is concerned, his great office as the spirit of truth is to lead us into truth. Now, as you look down the Christian centuries, you see the great landmarks that stand out through the ages of the church. What are those landmarks? They are the creeds and the confessions that the church, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, has been moved to make in order to safeguard, as we said this morning, the purity of the faith as well as the unity of the fellowship. And so you look down the centuries and you see the Apostles' Creed emerging in the fourth century, though no apostle, as I said to you this morning, had anything to do with it. It's a misnomer. But it was the first accepted formulation of the fundamentals of what the church believes. And then shortly after that, as many of you know, the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 that dealt with the uh, doctrine of the Trinity, and then the Council of Chalcedon in the year A.D. 425 that dealt with the two natures of Christ, and then the great creedal and confessional statements of the Reformation that filled out those early uh, statements of what Christian Christians believe, that became more complete exhibitions of God's truth. Now, you see, what I'm saying to you is that we need these statements and doctrinal studies because all through the history of the church, they are evidence of the Holy Spirit's work of leading us into the fullness of truth. They are not to be equated with Scripture, but they are to be received by the church and they are to be built upon as an expression of the church's understanding of what the scriptures teach. And the confession of faith takes an honored place in this great history of landmarks through the Christian centuries. When the Reformation came, the entire body of the creedal truth that had been formulated in the ancient church councils was gathered up and expressed afresh in the statements of the Reformation confessions. And the beautiful thing, beloved, is this, that as we go on through the Christian centuries, if the Lord delays his return, what we are going to see and what we should expect is not that these ancient landmarks will be abandoned like ships stranded by the tide and left behind us, but they will be taken and incorporated in still fuller statements of what the church believes as the Holy Spirit continues to shed light upon the sacred truth of his own word. And so, you see, we need to value the confession of faith. We need to value the study of doctrine. 
because we are part of a great ongoing historical process which is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in his church but is to the honor of the Holy Spirit and as we study doctrine and as we are enabled to express it concisely in the face of heresy and error we are honoring the office of the one who is the spirit of truth and leads God's people indeed into all truth it is vindicated by history now the third reason you notice is that this kind of study is endorsed by Christian experience you may have noticed in the church magazine for this month the vineyard that among many other comments that I made in my pastoral letter upon the value of the shorter catechism I made one short but significant comment that I hope many of you picked up on that it's not often realized the shorter catechism was provided primarily in order that the Christian experience of believers including children might be enriched it's a very personal catechism it's a very applicatory catechism it's not some doctrinal statement but is there some airy fairy region where uh, intellectually it contains something for us but has no real application to our lives it's for daily living it's for personal application and this is really what I'm saying to you as the third reason for the value of these studies that they have the endorsement of Christian experience now I'm not saying to you this evening that you need to have a knowledge of the Westminster Confession of Faith in order to be saved of course I'm not saying that but what I am saying is that when a person becomes a Christian he or she can only live out his Christian life or her Christian life effectively and joyously and to the glory of God when the truths of this confession are being understood and expressed in our daily Christian living. If I can put it to you this way, when you or when I became a Christian originally, we entered into a new world and a new experience we came to the scripture and it was very strange to us the doctrine of God's sovereignty for example the teaching about man's depravity it was not very acceptable to us we struggled with it and many of you will be honest enough to admit that you struggled particularly with the doctrines of grace but you saw them as taught in the holy word of God when you came for example to chapter 10 in which we see how a dead sinner is brought to Christ by effectual calling it was very strange to you and you said well wasn't it through attendance at some evangelistic meeting that I became a Christian or wasn't it through reading some certain passage of scripture or wasn't it through the testimony of some outstanding Christian friend of mine and the prayers of that friend that I came to Christ and then you read but it was because God ordained your salvation from eternity past and through the effectual calling of his word in association with his spirit he drew you to himself and your salvation is God-centered not man-centered or method-centered it was strange to you 
and yet your conscience bore testimony that it was indeed the truth. Now you see, what I'm saying to you is the beauty of the confession of faith and any biblical doctrinal statement is that things like this are taken and succinctly and clearly and precisely set out. And the credit is given where it should be given, to God alone. So you see, there is an endorsement of these things in Christian experience. And it's my prayer and desire through all these studies, and I've said this to you frequently, that if we have come to them, only in the intellectual realm, and we have rejoiced to see how one doctrine interlocks so perfectly with another doctrine, and we have seen the intellectual integrity of the Christian faith, that there isn't any contradiction in Scripture, that God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth simultaneously, and we've rejoiced in that intellectual awareness of the consistency of our faith. Beloved, if we've only done that, we've lost in large measure the real purpose and value of these studies because they're given to us for daily Christian living in the workshop, on the factory floor, dealing with a difficult boss and a difficult employee, dealing with difficult situations within the family of God's people. All of these things that we have been studying are doctrines for life, and we should study them for life and for Christian living, the endorsement of Christian experience. Now, the fourth and final thing as I draw to a close this evening is that the value of doctrinal study is that it provides a remedy for the condition of the church. Do I need to say anything this evening about the condition of the church? Is it not tonight, indeed, in many areas of the world, in a parlous condition? That is to say, ineffective very often and ineffectual. There's great doctrinal confusion and uncertainty. In many areas, there is profound ignorance of even the first principles of the Christian faith. So that what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 6 of that great letter to the Hebrew Christians applies today as much as it did to then. But you are in need, he said, of being reminded again of the first principles of the faith. And instead of being able to take the strong meat of God's word, I need to feed you again with the milk. Now, isn't that the state today of the church in large measure? And we need to ask, what is the reason for that condition in order to find the remedy? And I would say to you this evening without qualification, is it not because very largely we have long despised and ignored the heritage of faith which is ours? We have ignored the great formulations such as this one in the confession that has been before us in this long period. Here is a treasure indeed. Here is a remedy for the church's weaknesses and ineffectiveness. Here in the company of God's people as we study these things together, what happens as we take them into our hearts and minds as our conscience affirms the rich truth of God. 
We find, as I said in the sermon notes this evening, that there is a much-needed iron put into the blood of an anemic Protestant church. Its witness is strengthened. Its life is revived and renewed. Its convictions are empowered. Its evangelism is furthered. The body life of its congregation is enriched and strengthened. And so we could go on and on and on. I look back in the days of my own country in Scotland when the confession of faith was studied avidly and every child of the age of seven had already memorized the 107 questions of the, of the shorter catechism. And those days in that land were days of God's power when in families who worshipped together, you could say that almost every member of many a family was converted to Christ at an early age, where the church in its worship enjoyed powerful preaching and exposition of the scriptures, where its missionary endeavor affected large areas of the pagan world. And so we could go on. And just imagine then today what this would mean in the life of the church now. And in the place of confusion, we would have certainty. And in the place of imprecise doctrinal statements, we would have succinct commitment to the whole counsel of God. And so you see what I'm saying to you in a word is if we need a new faith for our new day, it is not by producing some new formulations of the scriptures, because I believe we are not living in an age that is capable of making those kind of formulations, an age which is bent upon overturning the foundations that already exist. But if we need a new faith for a new day, it is to go back into the church's history, back to those great landmarks, that are there to honor the work of the Holy Spirit in his enlightenment of his church to understand the truth of God back further still to the fount from which all these landmarks were taken, the fount of Holy Scripture itself. And we need to say as we finish this evening that of course we do not place the Westminster Confession of Faith on the same level as the inspired word of God. We do not consider any writings of men to stand on an equal plane with the oracles of God. But what we do say is that there is no better occupation for Christian people to be engaged in, aside from the study of Scripture itself, than the study of the Westminster Confession of Faith among all the uninspired writings of men, probably no other has so closely approximated to the full counsel of God, to a declaration of his whole will for his church, as this document has. Instead of wordiness, we find conciseness. Instead of unwillingness to offend, clear delimitation of the truth from error. Instead of obscurity, clarity, instead of vagueness, 
utmost definiteness and precision. And this, I proclaim from this pulpit, is the need of the church and the age in which we live today. So it is my prayer that this might be the fruit of these studies together, the study of this biblical statement that is vindicated historically, but is endorsed by Christian experience and is surely a remedy for the church's condition in this age in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this evening for what we have learned again we trust biblically concerning the value of Christian doctrine. Enable us, our Father, to be men and women of God who have today a doctrinal framework for our faith and a doctrinal backbone to our convictions. And may we grow in the love of the Scriptures. May we grow in an understanding of how they interlock and interrelate and may we be able, in the words of the Apostle Peter, indeed, to be able increasingly to give a reason for the hope that is within us. For the glory of God we ask these things. Amen. <laughs>